chapters in this book that you can divide it up, if you will, to a little Old Testament, New Testament. The first 39 chapters are very Old Testament-ish, if you want to say it that way. Uh, you don't want to say law, but uh, as somebody said one time, the first 39 chapters, it seems like God's in a bad mood, and the last uh, 27, it seems like He's in a good mood. You know, what it comes down to is that there is definitely a change of tone here and from chapter 40 on. First 39 chapters of Isaiah, there is a lot of passages on judgment and God's wrath coming, the sin of Israel and how it's going to be dealt with. And then you have those little um, parentheses, if you will, of uh, chapters 36, 37, 38, and 39 that deal with Hezekiah, and we talked about him for the last couple of weeks. In chapter 40, it's definitely a distinct change. I mean, look at, in my New King James translation, the first word of verse 1 is comfort. And, you know, chapter 40 is just one of those chapters where you walk away, and I hope you feel good about it. I mean, there's every verse in the Bible is good, every chapter is good, but chapter 40 is really just what I think is one of those pick-me-up type chapters. And if you look at the bookends of this chapter, verses 1 and 2, in the last few verses, you see the theme that he's trying to do here. Look at the first two verses of chapter 40. Comfort, yes, comfort, my people says your God, speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. It's over. You know what we've talked about? Judgment. We talked about sin has to be judged. We talked about all the wrongs. And we talked about how everything was taken care of. First couple verses now, okay, Israel, take a deep breath, a sigh of relief, comfort. We're going to talk about your Messiah coming. Those first two verses, then jump ahead to the end here. And look at the last uh, few verses, start in verse 28. Look at the bookends of this chapter, verse 28. Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Those are just one of those deep sigh verses. You read them and you're just like, wow, Lord, thank you. We have comfort at the beginning. We have strength at the end. We have God's hand being upon us. What a nice passage to end and begin with there. So as you have this in your mind here tonight, now the question that comes up is this. Those are the bookends. That's what God's going to do. He's going to give you comfort. He's also going to give you strength when you don't think you can handle it. Now, I have to make a quick teaching point about this. God's comfort, verses 1 and 2, are always there for you. The problem is, a lot of times, you and I don't want to accept God's comfort. Because we don't want God's comfort. We want our will to be done. I'd feel better if God was just doing what I want. But even when things are not happening the way you want, even when the world is going against you, even when you get that tough word from the doctor, you get that tough word from job, when life is falling apart, God says, I'm still got a comfort for you. Are you going to accept that comfort or not? And when you feel like you can't go one more day, one more moment, look again at the end of these verses here. Verse 28, God neither faints nor is weary. He has an unlimited amount of strength to get you through whatever problem you're facing. So therefore, verse 29, when you come to Him when you're weak, He will give you power. When you come to Him without much strength, He will increase you strength. When you come to Him, He will keep you from fainting and wearying and from falling. What do you have to do? Verse 31, those who wait on the Lord. And isn't that the hard part is waiting? That's the patience thing. But I promise you this. When you say, okay, God, I will wait for your strength, I will wait for your comfort, I will wait for you to move, He will move and He will take care of you. 
problem is, once again, we're a very impatient people, and God doesn't move quick enough for us, fast enough for us, and so therefore, we try to do it in our own strength. Ah, it's better just to wait. It's so much better just to wait. Because when you wait, verse 31, your strength is renewed. You mount up on the wings of eagles. You run and not be weary. You walk and not faint. If you're in a tough time tonight and you feel like you can't go one more step, then you need to focus on verse 31. Wait on the Lord and He will renew your strength in due time. Don't rush Him. Don't push Him. Don't get ahead of Him. Wait for Him and He will be your comfort and your strength. Those are the bookends of what we're going to talk about tonight. Now, What's our responsibility as we go through this? Because God comforts us and because God gives us the strength, what should we do? Jump back to verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Our role, because we are comforted by God and because we have strength by God, our role is a role of preparation. You know, when John the Baptist was asking John 1, Who are you? It says in John 1, He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, Then what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? So when John asked, was asked what his mission statement was in life, he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. What did he do? He quoted Isaiah 1. Now, I have to talk about John the Baptist here a little bit because John the Baptist doesn't get his due. Do you realize what Jesus said about John the Baptist? He was the greatest human ever born. That is a pretty big statement. And that is a statement that is not up for debate because God said it. What makes John the Baptist the greatest human being ever born? His whole ministry was what? Pointing people towards Jesus. That's all John did. was a role of preparation, of preparing people and pointing them towards Jesus. John had the first megachurch. He did. And when Jesus came, what did John say? I don't want the glory. I don't want the attention. I'm not even able to loose your strap on your sandal. He just kept pointing people towards Jesus. So, you want to be a great human, and I don't mean this in an egotistical, prideful way, then the question you have to ask yourself is, how's your preparation? Are you preparing the way of the Lord? See, so often as Christians, we get worked up about stuff, don't we? We, we get upset about things that really don't deal with all of eternity. You know, I've been in meetings out here at church. I've done stuff where it's like, okay, this is so big. We have to focus on this. And we have to look at these building plans. We've got to take care of this worship problem. We've got to take care of this Sunday school problem. We're really in the whole scheme of eternity. Are we pointing people towards Jesus? I've also seen in my own life where I will hear something on the news, listen to something on the radio, and I can feel myself just getting all worked up. Does it really matter in the whole scheme of things? Are we pointing people towards Jesus? Or when I used to work a secular job, or even sometimes out here, I get so worked up, but what's going to happen tomorrow at work? And the whole scheme of eternity doesn't matter. Am I pointing people towards Jesus? See, when you keep that preparation mindset, all of these little problems that Satan likes to take little things and make them big things, it just doesn't matter. We point people towards Christ, we make straight the path, and we have a ministry of preparation. So first question we have to ask ourselves is, are we preparing you know, see, John was preparing for Christ to come. We're preparing for Christ to come too. 
We have a preparation. Are we preparing for Jesus to come? That is our responsibility. Okay, well, what are we supposed to say? What are we supposed to do? Verse 6, the voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? I love Isaiah. I can relate to Isaiah. Because you know why? Isaiah, if he doesn't know what to do, he just asks. Okay, what am I supposed to say? Verse 6, all flesh is grass and all of its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass and the grass withers, the flower fades. Look at these last eight words, but the word of our God stands forever. What are you supposed to say? Verse 8, God's word. The more I study the Bible, the more I study out God's word, the more I realize I need to study more of God's word. Now, I went through a phase, I'll be the first to say it, where it was almost this legalistic burden. I have to study, I have to study. And now it's, Lord, I just want to study. What do, you, what do you want to show me? What do you want to do here? Because it's God's Word. I used to get worked up when we do counseling with people. What am I going to say? This marriage is falling apart. This is so tough. Give them Scripture. Well, they don't love each other. Take them to 1 Corinthians 13. Tell them what love is from a biblical point of view. The guy comes, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. How do I love my wife? Take him to Ephesians. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Somebody comes and says, I'm so angry about this. What am I supposed to do? The Bible says, pray for your enemies. It's amazing. You just give them God's Word. Counseling simple now. The point is, the Word of God stands forever. It's not the Word of James. It's not the Word of anybody else. It's the Word of our God stands forever. My words will falter, wither, and disappear and will make no impact but the Word of God will make an impact in everything we do and everything we say. Isn't it interesting? John's ministry was a ministry of preparation. And how do we know it was a ministry of preparation? Because what did John do? He quoted God's Word. Now, John didn't have his pocket-sized NKJV back then. He didn't have a pocket-sized scroll either. How did John know what Isaiah 40 was? I don't know. Holy Spirit, obviously. But he quoted God's Word. I just want to encourage you. The first question is, are you preparing the way of the Lord? Next question, are you using God's Word? Now, and I always have to throw this out here, is if you say, okay, I don't know what I'm supposed to say or do, that's why I encourage you, get involved with one of these discipleship small groups, etc. We've been praying a lot out here, and we're hoping to start out some new stuff, of um, some more discipleship, some more Bible studies throughout the week, small group stuff. That's where you really can get into stuff. Sundays are great, Wednesdays are great, but the truth of the matter is on Sundays and Wednesdays, you get a great time of worship, and you get some time of fellowship and some teaching. But if you really want to grow, sometimes it's that small group together, keeping us accountable Digging into God's Word together. And also I encourage you to do it privately too. So, are we preparing and are we using God's Word? So, now that we have God's Word, okay, what am I supposed to say about it? Verse 9. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountains, O Jerusalem. You who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Now, good tidings. I'm willing to bet that you've probably never used that phrase, good tidings. If you'd go into work tomorrow and say good tidings to people, they'd probably think you're a little funky. So, New Living Translation, I think, says it very nicely. Messenger of good news. Now that I like. I'm a messenger of good news. What's the good news? Jesus Christ. Now the only way you can be a messenger of good news is if you already have the good news in your life. If you don't have Christ, you don't have any good news to share with anybody. It goes back to your words. Somebody can call me up and I can give them a pep talk on the phone and I can tell them everything's fine, great, and dandy. But my words, once again, falter and disappear. 
God's word stands forever. So the rest of that verse says, Messenger of good news, shout to Zion from the mountaintop. Shout louder to Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Isn't that the truth? We get nervous, we get worked up about sharing about the Lord. Tell the towns of Judah, your God is coming. It goes back to what we said at the beginning. We can get worked up about a lot of things. The main thing to get worked up about is God is coming. Are we preparing? Are we using God's word? Are we using those good tidings, the good message there? Are we doing that? Now, let's take a break here real quick before we get to the rest of it. Does anybody have any quick questions, comments about anything here we went over thus far? Okay. Oh, yeah, Megan. Mm-hmm. Okay. John, did he, he also the no, that's a very valid point. John, um, I think the technical phrase is Jesus said he's the greatest man born of a woman, I think is, is how Jesus put it. Did John question the Lord? John had a moment, and I don't want to use the word of doubt because I don't want to interpret too much. If you remember the story, John the Baptist made a stand against Herod, and Herod threw him in prison. So John is now in prison, and that's when John sent some of his disciples to Jesus, and he said, are, tell me, are you the Messiah, or shall I look for another? Now, you can take that a couple ways. Is he questioning Jesus? I don't know if he's questioning him. I think he's clarifying, and maybe you're saying, isn't that just splitting hairs? I don't think John's faith was in question. I think John was basically saying, okay, things are going so good, <laughs> and now I'm in prison. What's going on here? I've had those moments in my life, too. It's like, okay, God, do, do you really know what you're doing here? I mean, seriously, Lord, do you? I mean, I, I prayed for this. I prayed for that. Do you really know what you're doing? Do you know what's going on? Yeah, John. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, if you think about it from John's perspective, that's a good point, is Messiah is here. Maybe John was invigorated. Herod, what you're doing is wrong. Okay, go to prison. Well, wait a second. The Messiah is here. Why, is this, why are we on the losing side? Yeah, the, the apostles had this mindset that Jesus was going to come back, throw Rome off, and set up his kingdom. In fact, if you even read some of the rest of the New Testament, my interpretation is Paul almost had a mindset that um, Jesus could return in his lifetime. You know, the disciples thought Christ is coming back. I mean, Jesus made it sound so simple. Hey, guys, I'm going to go up to the Father for a little bit, wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes, and then I'm coming back. Okay, well, we've been waiting 2,000 years now, Lord. It reminds me in the book of Acts where uh, they, bought, they sold all their possessions and all that. And yeah. We're expecting things to happen quickly, I believe, and then it's like, hmm, don't have no land. And, isn't that, and seriously, but isn't that the big thing that happens? Don and I just had a situation pop up on Monday. We were going someplace, and it's like, okay, I'm going to do this at this time, but may this may happen, etc. We had different assumptions on when we were going to be getting done on stuff. So she had the two youngest kids, and she called me. It's like, aren't you done yet? It's like, no, nah, I'm not going to be done for another 45 minutes. Well, you know what? I think sometimes we're like, okay, Jesus is returning. I can remember when I first got saved, uh, you know, I knew somebody that said, hey, I think Christ is coming back here in the next few years. You know, this guy wasn't picking a date, but, okay, 15 years later, he still hasn't come back. Now, if you come and ask me, is Jesus returning soon? I'm going to tell you, you know what? It could be a year, 10 years, 10 minutes, 10,000 years, I don't know. But I'll tell you, boy... Stuff is really lining up for him to come back. He may also wait another thousand years. I don't know. So I guess to go back to your question there, Megan, was John questioning? No, I think John was basically in a moment of darkness saying, God, are you there? God, is this really you, Lord? Because 
this is not what I was expecting. That's the way I kind of take that passage there. So, anybody else? The way he answered him, though, in return was like, I don't know, kind of like a duh. Like, well, I, but, but isn't that kind of the truth? I mean, seriously, when we have our moments of doubt, don't you think sometimes God up in heaven says, duh? I mean, it's like, okay, I parted the Red Sea, I plagued Egypt, I rose from the dead, I raised these people from the dead. What else do I have to do to prove that I can handle your situation? You know, I mean, Jesus had moments of exasperation where he said, how much longer shall I put up with this generation? I mean, don't you get a little exasperated sometimes with your kids of like, okay, guys, come on, you, you know better. I, before I came out to church today, Elias started screaming. Okay, what's wrong? Go in there. Well, they have this little game where they have this little um, ice cream scoop and it's part of a game and you have to set up the ice cream. Judah, for no reason, just smacked Elias with it. It's like, what are you doing? I mean, there's no reason for that. And then Judah's like, I didn't hit him, I just touched him. Well, you touched him with a blunt force object. That's a saw. But the point is, they know better. They're not. I mean, and I think sometimes you just sit there going, what are you doing? What are you doing? I think sometimes God sometimes says, James, I love you, man, but what are you doing? You know, I don't know what the word is. Frustrated, exasperated, you name it. You know, God sometimes says you know better. And we do know better. We do know better. Yeah, John. Yeah, well, Dave, yeah. If you weren't here, you have Pastor Dave from Columbus. Yeah, what do you expect from a pile of dirt? And uh, that's a very good point. You know, God is not surprised at our failures. I surprise myself when I sin. I can't believe I did that. And Jesus is like, I can believe you did that. You still have sin nature. And, you know, and I think sometimes almost we're harder on ourselves than what God is. God says, I want to forgive, forget, and move on. Blood of Jesus covers that. And I'm like, Lord, I can't believe I did it. So, anybody else have anything they want to say here before we go on? Okay, so, are we preparing? Are we preparing by being God's Word? What do we say? We talk about good tidings. Okay, next question. What is the good tidings then? Verse 10. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. It's a beautiful picture of the shepherd. I joke out here a lot of the classic picture of Jesus walking around with the lamb around his neck. But here's one of those verses where the picture is, you are that cute, adorable little lamb and God just holds you. And I've told you this before, I grew up on a farm where we had lambs. I don't think there's any cuter baby animal than a baby lamb. They are just downright adorable and downright dumb. There's just a good description of us. God loves us, but we're really not that smart. But you see this beautiful picture here. Now, if you ever feel like no one cares, no one understands, no one gets it, I'm all alone... Verse 11, Isaiah 40, He gathers you in His arm, He carries you in His bosom, He leads you. Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd. That's what it's talking about here. That's part of the good tidings. God cares for you. And maybe you know somebody right now, maybe you are one of those people of where you need those good tidings. This verse is for you. God cares and loves you. Maybe you already know God cares and loves you. Maybe you're going to run into somebody tomorrow who's going through a horribly difficult time. Verse 11 of Isaiah 40 is for them. God cares for you. God loves you. Okay, what's the next thing that we can talk about? We've talked about, are we preparing by talking about God's Word? What are we supposed to say? Good tidings. What are the good tidings? The first one is God's love for us. Verse 11. What's the next? Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Measured heaven with a span. Sounds like Dr. Seuss. I just realized that. And calculated the dust of the earth in measure. 
weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or as His counselors has taught Him? With whom did He take counsel and who instructed Him? Who taught Him in the path of justice? Who taught Him knowledge and shows Him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, He lifts up the isles as a very little thing and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn nor is its beast sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. What you have here in verses 12 through 17 is God's immense strength. So you have the gentle arms of verse 11 that hold you, but you have the arms in verses 12 through 17 that can crush anything that gets in the way. Now, this is not a verse of crushing us. See, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah would probably be something about God crushing Israel. This is God crushing anything that gets in the way. And we don't have to worry about it because we're safe in His arms as the little lamb. Now, I have to be honest with you, these are the type of verses that really just fascinate me. Because I looked at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand, measured heaven with a span? Now, I'm a big astronomy guy, you know that. What's a span, depending on your translation? Span is basically the distance between your thumb and your uh, pinky. This is my span right here. So what it's saying is God's hand, the whole heaven fits in it. Now this is not a literal thing, okay? Because you've got to be careful here. You know, like, okay, so God's hand is really that big? It's talking about the immense power of God. How big is the heavens and the universe? can't be calculated. Just, there's no way to even guesstimate how big that is. There's theories that go back and forth. Is the universe expanding? Is the universe shrinking, etc.? The point is that, as we know right now, it's infinite. We can't see how big it is. And basically what's saying is, oh, heaven fits in his hand. I mean, it's just a fascinating thing. Next one. Who has calculated the dust of the earth in a measure? Well, did you know someone calculated the dust of the earth? I'm going to throw some figures out here for you. Isn't this fascinating? Somebody figured up on how many grains of sand are in the earth. 7 to the 20th power. That's 7 followed by 20 zeros. Now, that's just the grains of sand. Scientists believe, check this out, that over 1,000 tons of space dust fall each year on the Earth. 1,000 tons, and they're guessing 7 to the 20th power grains of sand. Can they know that for sure? Of course not. It's a guess. And I have that much dust in my house sometimes. But the point is, God says in verse 12, I can calculate that. I got online too. Somebody has tried to calculate how much a mountain weighs. Point is, God says, I'm stronger than this. Now, it's not only the strength, but there's another S word. It's the smarts. Okay, so God's powerful. He has heaven in His hand. He can do all this. The point is also the intelligence that God has. Look at the end of verse 14. Who taught Him knowledge and showed Him the way of understanding? Okay, so if we're trying to figure out how many grains of sand there are and how much dust is on the earth, God says, I already know all that. The point is, if he already knows all that, why not take our problems to him? Why not use him as the great encyclopedia of, Lord, what do you want me to do? Because it goes back to, well, I've got to figure it out. I'm smart enough. I've analyzed this situation. I've looked at it. No, we don't know anything. We don't know how many grains of sand there are on the earth. God does. We don't know how much dust is on the earth. God does. So why not go to him? When we need wisdom, counsel, and understanding, why not go to him that knows all these things? Verses 15 through 17. Nations are a drop in a bucket. It's fascinating. One of the interpretations of the Battle of Armageddon in Revelation 19 
Because some people believe Armageddon is the enemy uh, through demonic influence in gathering the nations of the world to try to fight Christ at the second coming. Now, if you just think about that, how ludicrous is that? The nations are dropped in a bucket. We just got done saying the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. God says, okay, um, Assyria, I'm going to use you to judge Israel. And then Babylon, I'm going to use you to judge Assyria. And then Babylon, I'm going to use you to judge Judah. And then I'm going to send uh, the Medes and the Persians in to judge Babylon and then the Greeks to judge... It's like a big game of chess for God. The nations are a drop in a bucket. You know, we get so worked up sometimes on things. And God says, I, I have the nations under control. I have, look at verse 17, all nations before Him are as nothing. And He even goes one step further. And they are counted by Him less than nothing and worthless. All the pomp and circumstance we put into uh, government and that we put into pride and all the stuff down here on earth, God says, you know what? That's really just a whole lot of nothing. I count it as worthless because God has it all under control. So, what are we supposed to do? Prepare. How do we prepare? Through His Word. What are we supposed to say? Good tidings. What are the good tidings? God is love, like the Lamb. God is strong. He has it all under control. Now, there is just one little part in here that I have to call the quote-unquote negative part. Because what happens is then, as man, we hear all this stuff about God, so then we try to create God in the image that we want. Verse 18, To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare to Him? The workman molds an image, and goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a excuse me, whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to repair a carved image that will not totter. The point that's saying here in verses 18 through 20 is, okay, God, we're going to take you now and make you the image of what we want. I just read an article online the other day where somebody very scholarly decided that Jesus must have been homosexual. And you know, okay, there, you know what? And then people jump behind that. They took God and made him to the image that he wants. Somebody just the other day was talking to me about how they like gender-neutral dialogue about God. God said He wanted to be called He. You know, they make God into the image they want. And isn't this what we do? Well, I don't think God would like that. I don't think God would want that at all. I've shared this story before, and I'll make it quick because we're running short on time. I remember watching a um, program years ago. And it was one of those panel discussions, and they had four people on the program plus the moderator, and they had one guy on there that was the Christian. Now, most of the time when they have the quote-unquote Christian on these programs, the Christian really is an embarrassment to Christianity. This guy was good. This guy was real good, and I wish I could remember his name. But I remember him quoting John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And I remember the other people in the panel saying, I don't think Jesus would like you saying that. I'm thinking, Jesus said it. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father. But they had their image of God that Jesus wouldn't like that being that divisive. Jesus is the one that said, I don't think I came to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. So, we may not, in verses 18 through 20, you may not go home tonight and get out some gold, some silver, and copper, whatever, and make your little idol. But just be careful that you don't box God into what you think God is. You may not have a literal statue, but I think sometimes we have a statue of God in our head. And what Isaiah is trying to say here is, careful. Don't make God out to what you want and to what you want it to be. Let God be who He is, and you come and know Him and who He is. Now, we're getting short on time here, so let's kind of uh, finish this up real quick. 
Um, I do like verses 21 through 23. I think they're a cute one there, especially verse 22. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Is it he who sits above the circle of earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers? I like that. Almost this picture of God sitting above and how nothing we are. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. You know, it's funny, when you study out science and they start out the Big Bang Theory and evolution, one of the things they say is everything was tightly wound and combined and boomed and exploded and it spread out. Now, I'm not trying to defend the Big Bang Theory here because I believe God spoke into existence, but if they really wanted to know what happened, it's already told you in verse 22. 4,000 years ago, God said, yeah, I spread out the universe. That's how I created it. I stretched out the heavens. Verse 23, he brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Useless. It's amazing how on this world, the idea of princes and judges and politicians and power, we uplift them and say, this is the person that's going to take care of all the problems and save us and whatever. Verse 23, God says, no, I bring those people to nothing. Nothing. Verse 24, scarcely shall they be planted, scarcely shall they be sown, scarcely shall their stock to take root in the earth when he will also blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. Basically, this idea of just uh, chaff, just blowing it in the wind. That's what God does. Verse 25, To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. That's talking about the stars. I just want to throw a few numbers out there. You know, once again, I like astronomy. On a basically nice, clear night out in the country, with your naked eye, you can see about 2,800 stars. So when you go out there, you can see about 2,800 stars. Now, of those 2,800 stars, how many have we named? Well, what happens, the real dim ones, they use this type of Greek numbering system to name them. They're really not named. So we haven't even really named the 2,800 we can see. What are the amount of stars out there? Just going to throw it out there. This is scientists' best guess. 10 to the 25th power. That's 10 followed by 25 zeros, the amount of stars. And God says, you know what? I know every one of their names. See, that's the God that's in charge. Now, just think about this once again. That's the God that's in charge. What do I really have to worry about? I mean, you know, I just have a hard time remembering everybody's name in my house. And God knows 10 to the 25th power every single star. Wow. It just reminds me, Lord, why would I not just take things to you? Why, why wouldn't I just take it to you? And you know what? It comes back now full circle. We talked about comfort at the beginning. Let's go here at the end. And what does it say at the end again? Verses 28. The creator of the ends of the earth neither faints nor is weary. He knows every star. He knows where they're at. He knows how much dust he knows how much water, he knows how much a mountain weighs, how much a hill weighs. And it doesn't overpower him. We get worked up about something little and God says, I got it all under control. And so what does he do? Verses 29 through 31 again. He gives power to the weak. He keeps you from fainting and being weary. He lifts you up, gives you strength. He helps you through it. Boy, Isaiah 40 is a great pick-me-up chapter. And I don't know where you're at tonight, but you know what? Maybe you just need that pick-me-up that God, you got it under control. And if you're doing good, I tell you this, you're probably going to run into somebody here over the next few days, the next week, and you're going to sit and see and say, boy, they don't have it under control. They're overwhelmed with what world has for them. You need to stop and give them Isaiah 40 then and say, there's a God that loves you, comforts you, and gets you through it. That's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of it. Anybody have any final questions, comments here before we close up? All right.
Isaiah 40 is done. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer and we'll let you go. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word tonight. Lord, we pray that whatever is being faced tonight, You would be the God that gets us through it. Your strength be our strength, Lord, because we can't do it on our own, Lord. We faint, we become weary, we become tired, but You provide for us and we say thank You for that. And we lift this up in Your name. Amen. All right, you guys have a good week and God bless.